And I was telling my manager one day, I said, we're getting a lot of pushback. We're seeing Sierra Club. We're seeing environmental groups come in and kind of stoke the local opposition. And he told me, well, wait until you see what we're about to do. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we start with the first of several interviews in our TXU at 10 series. We're focusing on the events surrounding the coal plant expansion and subsequent buyout of TXU Corporation, an event that turns 10 this year. My opening monologue, which lays out the story and major issues, can be found in the introduction episode. In this one, we'll dive right in. Our first guest in this series is Tom Kleckner. During this period, Tom served as media relations advisor for TXU. He was one of the company's in-house staff and represented TXU's interests day to day. Tom joined TXU in 2001. Even then, he was no stranger to buyouts and mergers in the energy sector. He had previously worked for Central and Southwest Power when it was merged with American Electric Power in 1997. After the TXU buyout and TXU was split into three separate companies, Tom joined the Generation Arm, which by then had been renamed Luminant. I met Tom in 2006 when I worked for Public Strategies as a media analyst for TXU. That essentially means I was a contractor who helped analyze media coverage for that company. PSI, as we called it, was physically embedded with TXU's communications team. By then, the coal expansion was in its eighth month, and the entire TXU communications team and PSI team were in one conference room together war room style. Tom and I have stayed in touch over the last 10 years. He moved on from TXU in 2008. Today he covers grid issues as a correspondent for RTO Insider. I wanted Tom to be as forthcoming as possible, so I hope you can appreciate his candor on what most of the time was a very challenging assignment. I hope you enjoy my interview with Tom Kleckner. you characterize the corporate culture there, uh, at least before the buyout? Coming from CSW, where we had a lot of focus on empowerment and driving decision-making down to the lowest possible level, it was a very enlightened organization, probably the most rewarding work that I've done during my career. And so going to TXT was kind of a step back because it's patriarchal and there are multiple divisions, but I also saw a lot of change when I was there because right when I came to TXU, they went from Texas Utilities to TXU and they rolled out a new brand and they were into marketing. You know, at the time we also had businesses in Australia and England, so we were international. I did more media than I did employees, so it's hard for me to kind of gauge what the culture was, but I didn't really see much of them except when we would do these breakfasts with the boss. We'd send the various execs out and they would hold these large 200, 300 person meetings and solicit questions. They wouldn't get that many, I didn't think. No one's going to ask a really difficult question in a situation like that. Public Strategies, who I worked for, was embedded in your communications office. It was set up war room style when I first visited in 2006. When PSI first came, how was that presented to your team? When John Wilder came on, which was 04, 05, we had a lot of shakeup. Then I got moved into TXU Power. 
so we had kind of more divisions within the company. Susan Adridge left, so we kind of lost sight of our executive leadership. We had a spot at the table, then we didn't. And then there was kind of a succession of we were asked to report to these different businesses. And so when PSI came in, as I recall, it was kind of this is how it's going to be. You know, good people and all, but we kind of lost sight of our direction. We didn't feel like we had the complete voice we used to have. Did you feel like maybe there was a little bit of a confusion about who was in charge of the message? Well, I would guess I would say that because we had two, three different people or firms or groups supplying different messages. And I don't think there was one person that had control of all of them. By the time of the leverage buyout, we really weren't involved. And it was kind of, here's what we're going to say. Here's what we're going to do. And at one point, we could have suggested messages or we would have been involved in the message writing process. But I think we lost that along the way. When PSI comes in, it's usually a sign that the company's facing challenges. Was that mm-hmm. maybe a heads up to you that maybe things were going to become more difficult communications wise? Yeah, because we had more control over what we were doing. My manager was the manager of media relations. He could give me, here's what we want to do, you know, go out and make nice with the local newspapers and just be a constant presence, buy these full page ads and everything. But when PSI showed up, it was to me a sign that maybe we hadn't been as effective as we could have been and they had to bring in someone else. And I would attribute that to not having you know, a singular head of communications that was in the communications department. What was some of the differences between, say, the strategy, if you will, between the existing TXU communications team and PSI? I think PSI had more of a wide-ranging view of things. I'm just speaking for myself. You know, I could relay information back. I'm not sure how seriously it was taken, but others of us were the ones that were on the ground interacting with community officials, the local media, and so on. The turning point came in April 2006 following a rolling blackout and spike in energy prices. Do you think that that put people in panic mode in Texas? Within our media group, it was kind of all hands on deck. What I remember about that time was we were starting to run into opposition from the local community at our two brownfield sites. That would have been Sandown, the two units at Oak Grove. And I was telling my manager one day, I said, we're getting a lot of pushback. We're seeing Sierra Club. We're seeing environmental groups come in and kind of stoke the local opposition. And it's becoming more difficult than it would have been. And he told me, well, wait until you see what we're about to do. And that was shortly before April 20th when we came out and announced the building eight additional plants so that we'd be building a total of 11 coal plants in Texas. And that goes to my next question, that just three days later, the company announced they were building 11 coal-fired units. You got to assume that plan was on the books and that that rolling blackout inciting incident was just a coincidence. How long do you think that had been on the books, this plan to do the expansion? And really, was there another inciting incident that said, hey, we're going to build 11 units all at once in one state? Well, one thing about the 11 units is we pushed those eight other plants. They were called the reference plants because they would all be built the same. That way you could reduce the cost by sourcing all your materials from one company. And I remember we had a company up in the Northeast that was going to do the boilers, I think, or do much of the work. So it was intended to be eight coal plants cheaper than they normally would have been. I do recall they're going to have the latest technology to reduce emissions. As to your question about coincidence, it was coincidence. I think they kept that at a very high level. 
their plans on the eight additional plants. My manager could have told me, but didn't, just kind of alluded to it. And I only had to wait a couple of days to find out what he was talking about. But I'm sure it may have even gone back into 2005 they've been working on this. Because I remember PSI was not the only person involved. I remember like this high-level consultant from New York that came down. You would see him outside on his smoke breaks. I was thinking about him the other day just because I remember the scene outside. You would always see him on a wall taking a little break, and he had to be under a lot of pressure. And I do remember at some point he suffered some sort of a heart attack or heart condition and had to be wheeled out of the building. And we never saw him after that. I'm sure he's okay, but we didn't see much of him after that. I thought they did a good job of keeping things together within a tight group and just bringing the rest of the communication staff in as needed. And so after the announcement of 11 units, the debate really fired up after that. Environmentalists piled on, city leaders bought the expansion. Give us a sense of the mood at the time there at TXU? Well, for us in communications, it was serious business. In full disclosure, I'm a fairly liberal person, as most people in communications tend to be. But it was my job to go out and to build these relationships with the media. That's what I did. I'd be driving out to West Texas or I'd be driving out to East Texas. At the same time, we tried to do things like show them our wind farm. So that's when I started doing a lot of tours of our wind facilities out in West Texas around Sweetwater. Within the group, I think we knew this was important. I don't think we knew how it was going to turn out. As we got into the process and started doing our work, I think we're fairly confident or we knew this was going to be important to the state. I think some of us bought into that, the economic development message that we pushed. Early on, I thought it would happen and I could make some of those arguments convincingly. But as we got into the public meetings in November, December, you could see more opposition starting to rise. We got more contacts from the local TV stations and smaller markets around Waco, especially people became more interested in it. The case became contested before the Public Utility Commission of Texas. And that put us into what's called the State Office of Administrative Hearings. And that was a pretty high intense proceeding. We also faced a huge rally sometime in February, March, I think, at the state capitol, people against it. We found out later, I believe it was Chesapeake was one of the, if you remember, there was a campaign against us that showed dirty faces. Coal is dirty, yeah. Yeah. I still have a couple of those T-shirts just <laughs> kind of to remind me. They use those same pictures in these big ads in the paper, and I believe those were pretty much funded by the natural gas industry. We're running to all this opposition. That's when it became frustrating, and that's about the time we're brought together one Sunday night, I think, and told what was happening with the leverage buyout. Let's talk about your messaging a little bit during that time before the buyout. TXU made the assertion that even with 11 coal-fired units, and there were actually other companies planting coal plants at that time in Texas. But TXU's net emissions would be reduced 20% across the whole fleet. Do you think that messaging was effective? That was the main messaging that I think was going out there at the time to the media. That was a tough message to deliver. I guess what they were saying is they would shut down some older plants, which I think they've done since then, and they would install the latest emission technologies at some of our older plants as well. And I believe that's how they were going to reduce emissions by 20%. Looking back, it doesn't seem to make much sense. I know locally, because I was working with the small town papers, 
I was pushing the economic development message, meant this many jobs. We had Ray Perryman out of Waco do a study for us, and it showed how it was going to increase economic development within the state. It was going to add X number of jobs. And so then we get to the buyout, the fun time. <laughs> that was announced in February 2007. It was actually, I believe, on a Friday. I remember being in my office. CNBC announced it first. The original idea was the announcement was going to happen Monday morning, all nice and neat in TXU's lobby. Right. But I think it got leaked. You know, kind of what happened with us during that time, because like you said, it was Friday afternoon. We were given an order not to answer our phones, which was frustrating for many of us. And we had Eileen O'Grady, who was with Reuters at the time, calling. We had Elizabeth Souter at the Dallas Morning News calling, and we couldn't respond to their, we couldn't even pick up the phone. We ignored emails, and we did that all through the weekend. Sunday night, we had the big meeting where they said what the names of the companies were going to be, the new organizations. And by the time it came out Monday morning, the local media already had stories in the morning papers saying it was going to happen. And for them, it was just a matter of updating after that. I'll tell you, Eileen sent several of us a little trophy. We were able to explain to her afterwards why we hadn't responded to our calls because that wasn't in our nature. Within our group, we took pride in, in responding quickly and in developing relationships with the media. What did the trophy say? I don't have it anymore. It said something like most dedicated to keeping silence or something like that, just recognizing that we had only done what we had been asked to do. Do you remember who told you, do not answer your phone? I don't think it was, you know, I'm not using his name, but we know who we're talking about. But yep. I don't think it was him. He may have just related, but he would have done it in a way that they've told me we can't answer our phones. Okay. What was your initial reaction to the buyout? Because your communications team was in the dark when it was leaked, correct? Yes. I think we knew something was up. I wouldn't say I was surprised. I've been through something like this before when I was at CSW, and we kind of knew things were up because there are all these private meetings that were just managers and directors and not including us. And we didn't have anything like that at TXU. I think they kept a much tighter lid on things. And again, I, having been through that before, again, there were a bunch of secretive meetings and you knew something was up. You didn't know what. And for me, I'm always more comfortable when I know what it is. Part of it was kind of disappointment that well, John's leaving and you're going to have these private equity group. It'll become a little bit more shadowy and we'll be less involved. But we, again, you know, we still had our job to do once we're finally allowed to respond to media inquiries. And let's talk about that period. The buyers, KKR and TPG, eventually becoming Energy Future Holdings, uh, mm -hmm. scrapped plans for eight of the 11 coal plants, agreed to build a gasification power plant. Now, you as a representative of the communications team had been beating a drum for almost a year that all these plants were necessary and that the company line was that gasification, it wasn't in the company's immediate interest. Was that difficult as a communications professional to have to change course like that? Yeah, it was difficult. It was a change. I've been pushing these constant messages, and now all of a sudden we're saying, hey, we're not. Well, the other problem we had, too, was telling the small communities that depended on these new power plants that they weren't going to get a power plant. That would have meant jobs and a boost to the local economy. Were they disappointed? I don't think I've ever heard that side of the story. Well, the one I went out to was Colorado City, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, a lot of desert around there. They were counting on the coal plant to bring more jobs to the area to kind of give them a boost. As a communications professional representing a utility, do you find that it's harder to get your message across favorably than, say, the environmental groups? 
I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I always felt the environmental groups found a more receptive audience. And there were times I felt like I was speaking for the big bad utility company when I'd be talking to a reporter who was asking about environmental concerns that had been raised. It was difficult to respond with an economic development message at that point. Randy Loftus, Dallas Morning News <laughs> reporter, we'll be talking to him. He basically faulted TXU for not getting public buy-in on the coal plant expansion. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think that's a fair assessment. We were slow in getting our community relations managers on the ground, and they tended to go with guys who had been working, and they were all men, as I recall. They kind of used some of those good old boy connections, and I'm not convinced that the way they pushed the messaging was as effective as it could have been. In fact, we had one public hearing in Mount Vernon. Remind me the Eagles, Don Henley. Mm -hmm. So Don Henley was one of the speakers there. He is able to give a very impassioned defense of the environment against what the emissions from the coal plant would do. Afterwards, our community relations manager got into a shouting match, not with Don Henley, but with someone else within the community, and he had to be separated. And we were close to the buyout by then. I don't know what happened to him afterwards, but I don't think he stayed with the company much longer. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's an example of what we had to work with. We didn't have the best people in those positions. That guy really took it to the limit. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. That's pathetic. Yeah. Do you think the TXU coal expansion was a seminal point in the way the nation looks at coal even today? I think it helped raise awareness. I mean, we dealt with the New York Times. We dealt with Time Magazine. Texas Monthly, as you know, did a huge story on coal. And about the same time, I remember seeing some of these ads. If you remember the ad, it shows the guy in front of what looks to be a power plant, and he's got a hard hat on. He looks like an engineer type, and he wants to show the viewers our latest clean coal emission facility. And so he opens the door, and you step out into the door, and it's nothing but a wasteland, the idea being that there is no clean coal technology. Did you get the sense of the intensity of this, that this was definitely at a higher level? I would agree there was intensity there, but I think the consultants, saw more of it than we did because the consultants were the ones preparing all the materials and everything. And again, I felt like the incumbent staff of the TXU comms department kind of got left out. We could have contributed more. You understand the messaging better when you've helped develop it rather than having it handed to you and then go out and try and spread the message. The way it played out in the media was even though the buyers and TXU almost one in the same in a way, did you have confusion on your end? about who exactly you were working for. Did you feel, I, yes. I get paid by TXU, <laughs> but right. I'm serving the interests of these future buyers. How did you reconcile that? And, and what were your feelings about that at the time? Well, personally, for me, it was kind of a source of frustration. Again, we weren't as involved, we being the communications department, weren't as involved as we could have been. We were working for a different director that didn't come from a communications background. We had the consultants. We had PSI. We had other consultants. We had, what, a consultant for culture. We had a consultant for investor relations. We had a consultant for labor relations. There are four, five, six different firms. And you're right, it was kind of hard to tell who was actually guiding the whole thing. For me, you know, if you ask whether I was representing the interests of TXU or the buyers, I do remember feeling like it was about the buyers, but I've always had customer concerns too. And I remember that year and a half that I stayed after the leverage buyout, feeling more a part of the team when I was out in the field, you know, at a power plant or something, working with some of the managers there than I did when we were back in the office. During the period after the buyout was announced, those nine months, there was a lot of speculation about what the buyers were going to do with TXU. There's a lot of discussion 
discussion, I think very optimistic that TXU was going to become the first national utility. Did you ever get a sense that had things gone a little bit better with the commodity prices of natural gas, EFH would have successfully gone national and become a national utility? Boy, I don't think so, because they would have had competition from AEP, for instance, which goes from Ohio down to Texas. What's now NRG was a step ahead of them. And I think there are several other companies that were more advanced, Florida Power and Light, now NextEra Energy, that were doing things with renewables that probably had a more stable management team as well. TXU probably lost too much talent from within the industry to have been a national player. They might have been able to bring someone in, but the decisions they made didn't work out. And so who's to say the decisions they would have made trying to become a true national player would have worked out. You began in 2001. You described what it was like when you started. Tell me what the company was like when you left in 2008 and the buyout had already gone through. I think morale was down. Within Luminant, there were several exciting things that were going on. There was a new training center they opened in conjunction with Tyler Junior College. But again, there was that EFH group sitting over you, and new people were brought into our organization. We were split up, and we didn't have really a manager for a couple of years. We were reporting to a consultant, which was probably most frustrating, to report to someone who's not within the group who had more access to information than you did. And I think those of us that were left in that little group with TXU Power or with Luminant, I believe we're all gone now. A lot of people look at the eventual bankruptcy seven years after the buyout that happened in 2014, and they go, why didn't the company see the fracking revolution coming? What do you make of that analysis? I think that's a fair analysis. It may be because they didn't have enough people from the industry at the leadership level. It's because they didn't have someone that had enough of a utility background close enough to the decision makers who maybe had the pull to be able to say, hey, watch out for fracking. What do you think some of the biggest lessons are from this period? Two takeaways that jumped to mind. One is that we were trying to relay feedback or the the pushback that we were getting when we were just talking about three power plants, and we didn't feel like it was being taken seriously. And when they announced the eight additional power plants, and some of us in communications were not surprised as the process bogged down and more and more people came out against it and negative press, and you could see it kind of building. They didn't have someone that could see that coming, that knew how to respond to that. And I think a lot of our suggestions were kind of ignored, for lack of a better word. Secondly, I think, you know, it pays to have some sort of a good strategy department. And that strategy department, I think, needs to include a futurist or someone who can look at trends. You need to have some real good analysts that can kind of see what's coming and and be alert to what's out there in the industry so that you're not blindsided as energy future holdings when fracking became a big deal. I mean, we first knew about it. You started seeing these wells go up around DFW Airport, for instance. So ironically, the company that hired no telling how many consultants could have probably used to hire at least one more. I think one more consultant may have been good, but I think more importantly, they needed a tighter organization. All the various consultants, if we could have been more of a team than we were, I always felt like there was the consultants and then there was us, the people representing TXU. Tom Kleckner, thank you so much for your time. Hey, you're welcome, Jay. Enjoyed talking with you. 
There you have it, my interview with Tom Kleckner, former communications advisor for TXU and later its power generation arm, Luminant. I worked with Tom while I was part of the media intelligence arm for public strategies. The last time I saw Tom was at a board meeting for the Clean Coal Technology Foundation of Texas. We've kept up over the years and he's always been willing to help me out professionally. I really do appreciate everything he's done. And I do want to acknowledge some of the things we avoided saying in this interview. I think Brad Pitt said it best. Look, it's not my nature to be mysterious. I can't talk about it and I can't talk about why. Music was provided by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. You can reach me at energy-cast.com and check out pictures from the podcast at Host Energy on Instagram. Please join me next time when we get the consultant's perspective on this story from one of the directors who was embedded with the TXU team. That wraps up my first interview in this series. I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time. <laughs>